Hello there, my name's Elizabeth McCarthy, I'm the producer of the Breakfasters program and they're not going to introduce their podcast to you this week, I am. I'm going to tell you what is coming up on this podcast. This is the podcast for the last week of Breakfasters broadcasting for 2018. They're going to be back on air in the last week of January. And so it's my pleasure to tell you all about what you're going to hear on this podcast. First of all, Christy Harris, who is a boxer who won bronze in the World Boxing Championship. She came in to talk about that experience with the team. Also on the podcast is an interview with Paula Buller, who is one of the co-editors of the brand new Lifted Brow issue, which is titled Black Brow. It's a bunch of First Nations editors and collaborators and artists who came together to produce a very special issue of the Lifted Brow. Also joining the team is Bob Brown. Uh, environmental campaigner, former politician, and his partner Paul Thomas, who have collaborated on a new book called Green Nomads, Wild Places. And we also have esteemed food critic Michael Harden in for the Food Interlude segment to talk about the best and worst food trends of 2018. And in addition to those conversations, you'll also hear the team chatting amongst themselves about Christmas presents and nerd parties. Hope you enjoy. And as I mentioned, they will be back on air last week of January 2019. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. You're listening to Breakfasters. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that claim that they're nerds. Yes. It's yeah. kind of cool to claim you're a nerd these yeah. days. I think, oh, I'm you such know. a nerd. I read so much. I'm such a nerd. Yeah. You know? But mm. I think that's so. Um, I think we're more accepting of nerds. But that's why. Yes. That's why it's, it's almost okay. like a humble yeah. brag now. It is a humble brag. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what are your classes? How do you. What are your classes being a nerd, though? Because someone told me they're like, you're a nerd because you really like animals. And I'm like, well, that's. Oh. Maybe yeah. you're an animal nerd. Yeah. Maybe it's kind of. Specific. Like once I had, um, I was in in Adelaide, and I I had f- friends that I was staying with were going to, um, like Comic Con, and I was like, oh, you're such nerds, you know, just kind of lovingly giving yeah. hanging shit on them, and they were like, mate, you're going to the zoo, <laughs> like oh. on your oh. own, and that's the same. Well, that um, is a bit nerd. I see what they mean. There is an element of nerdiness yeah. about that. Yeah, also, yeah. I mean, I feel it's sort of. It's like now comics and comic culture is like that's all of Hollywood, isn't well, it's it? It's mainstream. Yeah. It's so it's not even just mainstream. It's just like that's what that those are the films that make trillions and billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I went to um, a friend's fortieth on the on the weekend on Saturday night, and it was great. I was you know. I, he didn't know I was coming because I told him that I was going to go to Meredith, and then I kind of thought and went, oh, actually, no, I'll go to your birthday. But I thought. I'll just make it a surprise. I'll just kind of rock up. Um, and it was great. He was like, I can't believe you're here. And I'm like, yeah, you you know, you're pretty important. I made him feel special. Because it was, his, it was the best his, present of all. Cause, yeah, because I didn't get him anything else. <laughs> 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 I was like, my presence uh. is present enough. 
But he is a <laughs> massive fan of Star Trek. Like oh. a big star. And he is, yeah. It's I think I think Star Trek, mm. still nerdy, Star Wars, not so. Because everyone's obsessed with Star Wars, right? Yes. But Star Trek is really nerdy. Star Trek nerdy. is another level. So yeah. Ground it? zero for nerds, isn't it? It is. Yes. And I, it was so good. So he's, so my friend, he's got three brothers. He's one of four boys in the family. Yeah. Uh, and so they went, that's, you know, it was the 40s, so they went a couple of speeches, so the brothers all got up. And I thought they had three microphones up on the stage. And I'm like, all right, everybody, here we go. You're going <laughs> like, to do a song. Yeah, so I thought, we thought? I, yeah, I thought, oh, maybe. Yeah, Three-part no. harmony. Yeah, it's been yeah. imagine it. Like a barbershop. That's exactly. I'm like, what's a bar? I'm like, there's only three mics, so it can't be a oh, quartet. Yeah. So is it a, a, a oh. barbershop trio? Oh, a trio would have been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> triplet would have worked. Makes more sense. <laughs> anyway, but they got up and did some spectacles. They were very funny. And then um, his best mate got up and um, did a speech. But then uh, one of his other mates got up and then they um, he had a script and they uh, did their own episode of Star Trek. So oh. got some other people up. There's wow. about ten people up on stage. And uh, he'd rewritten this Star Trek episode. And I think it went for about 20 minutes and it was the most... 20 minutes? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> oh, mate. Almost a full episode, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was they all... the ads. Yeah. It is. Lucky they didn't do a whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it was amazing because it was like, I've never... Like, so much was going... I'm like, what is happening? The whole time, I'm like, what is happening? All of the... I knew there were jokes in there because I knew other people were laughing, mostly people that were up on stage reenacting everything. <laughs> But they were having the best time and I went, this is the nerdiest party I have ever been to. Yeah, that is a proud nerdy party. I love it. Man, it was so great. And I and I spoke to my friend after I said, I said you know what I'm going to talk about on Monday? You know what my talk break's going to be? And he goes, what's the nerdiest party you've ever been to? And he goes, oh, I love it. I love it. And I go, I just, I, he goes, oh, and because he, he said, I don't know, I think we might have gone too far with it at the start. And I'm like... Yes, but... <laughs> That's what makes it, it so good, though. You don't it, want to go halfway with something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And I said, the beauty of it was that none of us got what was happening, <laughs> but we saw <laughs> how that much is, joy what? it was bringing to you. So it was like... And he goes, I quite often do this. I'll, we go around to each other's places, and I'll go around to my mate's place, and we will... Because he's an improviser as well. And he goes, ah. we'll improvise our own episodes of Star Trek, and I'm not afraid to say this, but I bloody love Star Trek and I'm like I bloody love that you bloody love Star oh. Trek and you go nuts. And did the play have like did the did the episode have anything to do with his life? Like was his life into or was it just I a, don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were it really was like people were saying there was a lot of you know there was some jokes in there and stuff and I was like is was there that's, that's very funny. That's terrific. And then it got to um and just like when you thought it was like oh that's peak nerdiness for a party then they go oh you've got to come up and open up your present and there was a big box on stage oh. and like, here we go what, what, what could was it be was it going to be like a stockogram enterprise or a, yeah something like that a Klingon you, yeah it oh, was Klingon's a monster m- massive yeah well you were very close so this massive box and he opens it up and he pulls out this samurai sword looking thing and it was a Klingon battle axe. A real one. 
Yeah, well, well, not as, really. As real as oh, they're made up. So. No, yeah. no, but not like a toy one. No, not like a toy. No, I don't. Like a collector yeah. one. Yeah, I, I don't guess know what so. Is. Yeah, it was just big and it looked real. And was it he was excited. Oh, beside himself, oh. like to the point of almost crying. Did he say a few words in Klingon? No. Well, oh. maybe maybe to his friends afterwards. But then, <laughs> to his friends afterwards. Like everyone was like, "Oh my god, that's." That's, we've peaked nerdiness on, on this party. So good. And then, like, you know, 10 minutes later, you know, speeches were, speeches were for an hour, but they were very entertaining. And then it was, like, later, like, went to cut the cake and they we all sang Happy Birthday, blew the candles out, and he goes, oh, we don't – there's no knife. And I went, oh, I think you'll find that there is. And I handed over – I said, you've got your battle axe. So – and it's massive. And I just went, there you go. And so it peaked nerdiness when he used a Klingon battle axe to cut his cake. <laughs> this is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's our last week uh, before we go away. <laughs> Uh, have a little holiday. Yes. Maybe I thought today um, we might talk about the best present you have ever received for Christmas from Santa. Oh, from or Santa. Doesn't, oh. Actually, it doesn't have to be from mm. Santa. Mine's from Santa. I'll kick us off if you like. Okay. Yeah. I remember um, I must have been maybe eight years, seven or eight years old. That's a good time for Christmas. I think you? that's peak time. Yeah, it is peak, isn't it? If you're younger than yeah. that, you may be a bit too young to appreciate, appreciate it. presents. Or you just get excited, but then you... Yeah, but just the whole idea of Christmas yeah. I mm. loved. Um, and I I really... There was, you know, a thing that I really, really wanted. Um, and I was... And I just remember, like, you know, being told you'd stay up and, you know, watch Christmas carols and stuff. And oh, it's then, the best feeling. Yeah. Christmas and, Eve was the best. Yeah, wasn't it? And you're just like, oh, it's happening. Go to the Angels and Shepherd's Mass. Yes. And all you go... Um, oh, I didn't ever go to that. Or you, uh-huh. maybe you got out <laughs> the um, cheese and crackers and the beer for Santa. Did you oh, leave a beer out for Santa? No, we didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, we always did that. Yeah. Yeah, we left I a... I think we left milk occasionally, milk and a bicky. Oh, our Santa yeah. was definitely a beer drinker. Yeah. <laughs> our Santa, yeah. He had quite the our thirst. Our Santa. There's only one Santa. Santa came, uh, would come, he'd have a little... He wouldn't drink the whole beer. He'd just have a little mouthful. A little sip. Because oh, he couldn't yeah. drink them all because of all the beers he'd get along the way. Yeah, exactly. He's very temperate. Yeah. Uh, and then... And cheese and crackers. Um, cheese and crackers. Mm. That's a good... That's a good late night snack for Santa. Yeah. Keep, keeps him going. <laughs> Uh, and then I oh, carrots. We did put out carrots for the reindeer. For the reindeer, yeah. yeah. <coughs> Outside on the lawn, um, and sometimes they'd leave um, snow tracks on the lawn. Oh, just that was special when that happened. Did you have snow in Albury? No, it was left over from from the North Pole. Oh, they'd have it on their feet. Oh, and they'd leave it on the very on cool. The lawn. I was so confused then. Yeah, sorry. No, that's all right. Um, <laughs> it's my brain. So, but I remember one night, uh, like, you know, when you had you couldn't sleep because you were so excited. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. And, I, and I swear I could hear the sleigh bells in the distance. And I remember waking up my brother. He wasn't asleep, but I remember saying, to "Martin, you listen, shh, listen." You can hear the sleigh bells. 
lights off in the distance. Oh. Uh, it, was just, I it felt magical. It did, didn't it? I remember sitting up um, and watch, like waiting and watching and thinking, I can, I'm definitely going to catch him this mm. year. And I must have always fallen asleep about five minutes later. Yes. And what were you going to do when you caught him? I don't know. I just wanted to see him. Just wanted to, yeah. Just like I want a Peter Pan to come to my window. Yeah. Say, get away. I'm drinking my beer. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I must have been like I was like, you know, because I could hear this. I'm like, he's coming. Let's stay awake so we can see, see him. And then you fall asleep. So anyway, I fell asleep. And then um, I came outside. Then it came out the next morning. And there was um, there was a standard amount of things under the tree. Did you have things under the tree or did you have stockings at the end of your bed? We didn't have stockings at the end of our bed in our house. We, we had pillowcases. Had... Yeah, yeah, pillowcases. Yeah. You could get more in them. In all of them. Oh, actually, no one really has stockings anymore. <laughs> no, they don't. We had a stocking as well. The stockings that have fun little treats yes. in it. Oh, we just had what was under the tree. But this year I walked out and then but in the backyard... There was a trampoline. Oh, my God. It was the best thing ever. How old would you have been? About seven or eight oh. years old. It was – I couldn't – I didn't know how Santa got it there. Like, I thought he must have um, built it in, in my backyard. Put it together. I, yeah, overnight. I'm You'd like, hear him swearing and throwing <laughs> Allen keys. <laughs> I'm like, how did I not wake up to that, you oh. know? But I just – it was just the best Something present. Something that big as well. Yeah. Also – like I don't know if it was like this for you, but we trampolines were controversial in our family. There was yes. lots of arguments about whether they were allowed or not. Yeah, was this before the era of the safe oh, trampoline? There was, yeah, it was square. <laughs> the, the, the bone breakers. Yeah, it, I, I don't know how many injuries we had on that in the <laughs> forthcoming years, but because it, it was one of those rectangle ones with the exposed springs. Oh my god, the exposed springs. Yeah, so getting on, or, you know, it was just like don't touch the springs. The amount of times I got my hair caught in that springs or. Just bits of skin. Oh, the pinch, the spring yeah. pinch. Oh. oh, and then and then trying to get off without getting an electric shock. But who cares? It was so much fun. And then, like, my brother and I, we'd play and we'd double bounce each other. Um, I think we ended up with a few spinal injuries. <laughs> They're quite unrecognisable now. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, I do look at them now. And it's funny because I get nervous watching kids even on the safety ones now. And I think, no wonder my dad was always cracking at it. Us oh. bouncing on like random people's trampolines. We loved it. Old multi-purpose as well. Like you don't just you don't just have to jump on it. No, you could use it um, under as a base. Yes, underneath. Yeah, get underneath. Build a fort under there. Get some blankets. Mm-hmm. You've got a whole. There's a fort there. Um, or you could um, turn it on its side. Soccer goals. Oh, yeah. sounds terribly dangerous. Uh, no, it was great because you'd kick it in the goals and it'd bounce right back to you <laughs> so you could kick it again. And then also um, it would double as a slip and slide. So we'd put the sprinkler underneath and then put get a bar of soap. I knew so many friends who did that and yeah. I reckon that was possibly the most dangerous children's <laughs> contraption of the 90s yeah. with the soaped-up trampoline. Soaped-up trampoline. Best. Yeah, that would sort the kids out. Yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah. Darwinian. Was, that uh, was the, probably the best present. But I think you're right. I think that age is about the age when you get the most excited about it. A bit older than that and maybe, you know, you're not as easily impressed by... Oh, you're more cynical about life. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You become bitter and jaded. Yeah. But um, I can remember getting like an experiment, a science experiment kit when I was a kid, and being like a chemistry, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, and being tremendously excited about it because it was actually it was one of those presents that um, 
once you started doing it, it was much less exciting than it promised to be because oh, it was going to be all these explosions and mad scientist mm. things. But um, actually, once you started doing it, we just... Just a bit of bubbles. Yeah, that's, that's right. A bit of Some foul smells. <laughs> <laughs> actually, turned out, actually, turns out the chemistry is kind of hard. I can't remember any of my... Like, I have a really bad memory of Santa gifts. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, what about in the last... I'd, I've had... Um, some pretty great presents in the last few years. I reckon as well. my most memorable present was from my brother. Actually, he gave me. He wrapped up this massive thing. He used to leave his shopping, his Christmas shopping, for the last the last twenty four hours mm. every year, and then go to twenty four at Chadston and get all our presents in one. Oh, he was such an idiot. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and just get it. Yeah, don't yeah. like that. I could hear him like wrapping them at three in the morning, <laughs> desperately. But he one year he thought ahead of time and he got me this massive present and it sat under the tree for ages. Probably was about 13 or 14 and I, th- I couldn't work out what it was. It was this big triangular shape and it ended up being an acoustic guitar. Wow. This is my younger brother, yeah, and he got me an acoustic guitar and uh, like a dummy's hell. I never learned to play it though. Oh. But the idea of it was really good. And it was, same thing. You know? Yeah, I had my brother gave me a, a skateboard one year. And I, Isn't the idea of that present the oh, best? Like I that's why it makes it the best it. present ever because you're like, shit, this is so yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll soon be a famous guitarist. Yes. Do you know what I did, though, with the skateboard? I found it before Christmas Day. Oh, my God, no. I know. And I because I knew where I, I knew where my brother had kept was hiding all these presents. Why would you look? This is what I don't get as a kid. Why do you go and look? I don't. Just, just can't resist. I don't know. Yeah. You know you shouldn't, but yeah. one part of you says, just a little quick look. And yeah. S- curiosity killed the cat. It did. So what, did you, did to... you pretend to... Oh, I think I got caught. Oh, jeez. Because I, I just went, I just want to have a little look at it and I pulled it out and then I, I remember, like, skating in the kitchen, like, oh. just up. And... That is not a little look at it. I can't believe you I took know. it out. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I heard the drive. I heard Mum come up the driveway, and I was like, "Oh no, oh no!" And I snuck into the laundry and hid it in the laundry. But there was no hiding. I got caught, and I got into a lot of trouble. I can't and believe Mum you was, got it. Yeah, Mum was really. Did they threaten not to give it to you? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. But yeah, I don't know what happened happened to it. Why I didn't learn how to ride it properly. It's one of my biggest regrets in life. Not well, you could have been a skater. And yeah. Sarah could have been a guitarist. What no, would we you have been? We I would have been, been a scientist. A scientist. Yeah. Just the road's not We taken. wouldn't be here entertaining the masses. <laughs> you are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R, the Women's Boxing World Championships, which are staged in India. One of the medal winners was Geelong-based fighter Christy Harris. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks very much. Tell us about these championships. How significant are they in the world of boxing? Yeah, so basically um, World Championships is a pinnacle of boxing. It's had over 300 female boxers from all over the world. Um, It's just as big as up there as the Olympics and all that, so it was awesome to be able to qualify and come back with a medal. So when you got there, who were you fighting? Tell us about the fights. Yeah, so um, first I had about 30 girls in my division. Um, first one I drew the bye, so I had to wait a fair few days before I was able to fight. Oh, how tense. <laughs> yeah, it's, it can be quite painful because you just want to get in there and do your thing, yeah. um, but waited out nice and patiently, and I had Costa Rica first up. Uh, so fought her and I won on a splits decision. So it was a close fight, but I got away with the win. Uh, then I was up against Brazil. Um, she was a good boxer, a bit more of a counter counter boxer. So I beat her on unanimous decision. I fought 
a lot better in the second fight. Usually the first fight, you sort of get the nerves out of the way. You get to know the venue and stuff like that. Um, and then I came up against Chinese Taipei and she um, eventually won the gold medal. So she's a world champion. Whoa. Yeah, and I lost to her on unanimous. Yeah, so she won every round and um, it was a really, really tough fight. She was very, very tall, like nearly two heads taller than me. Wow. It was, it was, <laughs> how do you even, oh. how do you box someone that's two heads taller than you? It, honestly, oh, I've tried to go to the body a lot because I yeah. really yeah. search it. Yeah, but um, she was, yeah, she was the favourite from the start and I knew that and I knew it was going to be tough. I'd never come up against a style like that before. So, but it was a really good experience. Enough. What is her yeah. style? Just to bop you on the head or? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. a few. She was, um, she was really quick and um, she was very, very evasive. So she was very hard to hit. Um, not just because she was tall, but her movements and stuff were really, really different. Wow. Before yeah. you said you boxed against someone who had a more of a counter style, yeah. what does that mean? So basically they're on the back foot a little bit and they wait for you to come to them oh. and then they kind of, yeah, try to pick you off a little bit. But if you just put the pressure on them and go forward, um, they don't tend to like it. So counter boxers don't really like getting roughed up and don't like pressure at all. So that's oh. what I had to do to get the win. Yeah. Uh, women's yeah. boxing was only legalised, I think, in New South Wales in 2009, which is really remarkably recent. Yeah. How, how much has it grown? Like how big is it in the Australia now. Yeah, that's right. It has grown so fast. Um, and probably since women's boxing was introduced into the Olympics in 2012, ever since then it was massive. It was actually reported to be one of the more popular sports to watch. Um, and ever since then, there's been a lot more female fighters and the quality has just gone up heaps. How yeah. long have you been doing it for and what made you get into it? Um, so I've been competitive since 2011. I had my first fight. I was 18. But I'd been boxing, not seriously. Probably I walked into the gym when I was 14. Wow. Yeah, but I had to train so hard and prove myself before my coach let me have my first fight. So I started training seriously when I was probably 16, like consistently. Yeah. And I had my two, my two years later, he let me have my first fight. But I won them the first handful quite comfortably so I think he just wanted me to not get hurt and um be confident but, but as yeah. a 14 year old mm. what what happens in the mind of a 14 year old that goes I'm gonna go into a gym <laughs> yeah. and start punching yeah. stuff why do you want to be a boxer yeah so do you know what I never really thought of it I was never a massive boxing fan I was never someone who was like watching boxing all the time blah blah, blah. but I like yeah. I always loved keeping fit and I always loved training. I was obsessed with it. I used to go for runs at lunchtime at school and everything. Oh. I know. I, know. Oh, right. <laughs> I just always obsessed and I think it's just like a habit. Once you do it and you do mm. it every morning, it's weird if you don't. So I always loved it. But then my dad knew the owners of this gym and he started training down there because it's not just fighters down there. It's people who just want to keep fit and mm. enjoy the sport. So he started going down there, convinced me and my brother to go down and I absolutely hated it. Like fourteen year old uh. girl walking in there, all these guys, all these old men, like yeah, this dirty yuck. old gym. I was like, this sucks. I don't know what I'm doing. I look silly. But once I, he, dad just convinced me to stick at it. Um, you know, and the challenge of it, I loved. So once I learned a little bit more, I got obsessed. Yeah. And is your brother a world champion boxer as well now? No, or? he's not. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> exactly stick at it. <laughs> so you've been training full-time at the Australian Institute of Sport. Yeah. How many other 
uh, boxes are in that position? Yeah, so there's only actually, what is it? There was three of us and now there's five of us. So we're on a Centre of Excellence program through the Combat Centre at the Australian Institute of Sport. So we had a long stay program. So I was actually living there um, like last year for a yeah, extended amount of time. But now we just go in and out of camps. But it's really, really good program to be on because it's got great facilities there. We get access to doctors and physio and nutrition and everything. So it's, yeah. Do you ever get scared? Like I read a lot about, you know, the concussions that happen in yeah. boxing. It's such a high injury sport. Do you ever worry about that kind of stuff? Like to be honest, it's not as brutal as people think. It's a it can be. You know, you can get bruised off. I've had my fair share <laughs> of black eyes and whatnot. But um, more of my injuries and stuff come from the actual training. So just like the overload of training, not actually being in the ring. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, you do get black eyes. You, I've had plenty of blood noses, that kind of thing. But that you know, that stuff heals. It's more from the actual training. So once you've been hit a couple times, is is a very big shock to start with. But you realise like it's it's not that bad. You got ten ounce gloves on that have a fair bit of padding on them. We wear headgear and a mouth guard. So yeah. so you don't worry about concussions. No, no, okay. no. I mean, you can definitely. Yeah. I have been concussed a couple of times, but not that much. And I fight at a pretty lightweight. So I won the medal at 54 kilos and under, yeah. but I, ha- I usually box at under 51. So 48 to 51 kilos. And, you know, you can come up at that Chinese type A She could really hit. She was quite skinny and tall, but she could really hit. And I, I think I had a bit of concussion from that wow. fight. But you do recover. You just have to be smart about it and know yeah. what to do and look after yourself. Mm. Is yeah. it scary in the ring? Uh, it's not scary. Uh, it's I do definitely get nervous though. But usually I always say to myself, I know I just have to get over getting in there, warming up. Can we quite nerve-wracking? I've always just got my headphones in on a bit of music playing. What do you listen to, Power? I do. <laughs> yeah. They're on the Power playlist. t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely on the playlist. Um, and then sort of psych myself up. And after the first round, like I love it. Like I love it in there and I'm having fun, even though it's very hard, like I'm exerting myself to 100%. Yeah, because how long does it... Does a match go for? So it's three by three minute rounds. They recently so quick, yeah. yeah, yeah. But honestly, it feels like forever. Oh, it does, yeah. Doesn't it? Because it's not like you know we're not fighting ten rounds or anything like that. We used to actually fight four two minute rounds, and that was even faster paced. Wow. But now we're fighting three threes. It pulled back a little bit, but because it's go 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 go, like it is a sprint. It's not like an endurance sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to so this is for three minutes. this yeah. is um, amateur boxing are you interested in turning professional is that possible in australia it's definitely possible you don't have to have i don't even think you have to have any amateur fights and turn pro it's people kind of have a misconception about it it is just a different ball game like i've seen like it's not necessarily that pros are better it's just a different ball game and like i really don't have an interest in turning professional um Again, like I've been at this a few years now. It'll take a couple more years to build yourself up. Um, yeah, it's it's longer rounds. I prefer shorter rounds and faster pace. Um, and I like working with the team and being part of Boxing Australia. So, yeah, I don't really have... And you don't fight as much, I find, as well, especially for females. Like in amateur boxing, you can go to a tournament and have like three or four fights and go to a few tournaments a year, whereas with the pros, you might not be able to get matched up 
you know, you might get matched up twice a year. So, uh, yeah. Oh, can I, this might be really dumb, but why was it illegal f- for women to box until I'm not even sure. I guess they probably thought it was too dangerous, which is really silly because it's just as dangerous for men and they hit harder. So I'm not really sure because I only started competing in 2011. Yeah, right. But, yeah, hmm. it's an and interesting question. Yeah. Your aim to go to the next Olympics? Yes, yes. So qualifications for that actually start mid-next year. So, but my weight division isn't actually in the Olympics 54, so I have to go back down to 51. Oh. So, oh. <laughs> eat less food. Oh, that's so <laughs> I know, it's hard. It's definitely not the fun part of the sport. Um, but I'll go back down to 51, um, or I can go back up, to, I can go up to 57 and compete. So, so what's the, the choice between going up and going down? Um, well, I guess that 57, I'll be enjoying eating food a lot more <laughs> <laughs> and not having to restrict myself. But being at 51, because I've fought there before I know a lot more of the boxes internationally and stuff so it's a decision me and my coaches um and a few other people will make shortly yeah so qualifications start mid next year for all that when you're kind of in that full-on training mood mode what does a day look like for you yeah so it's a little bit different from home to the AIS um at the AIS obviously you don't have to like everything is at your doorstep you walk to training you walk to physio like it's great so we train three times a day um, yeah, um, Wednesdays and Saturdays is two sessions and Sundays we have off. So, oh. yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, so it might be it's conditioning session in the morning. So like a run or a, a bike session or a circuit. And then mid mornings, usually like your strength work. And then we box in the afternoons and do a bit of sparring when it comes to comp time. Whereas I'm at home, um, like I said, I drive up to Melbourne from Geelong a couple of times a week and train at Collingwood Boxing Gym. Like that takes a lot of time out of your day with the traffic and stuff. So I usually do a couple of sessions a day um, when I'm home, plus working and stuff like that. Amazing. (laughs) We've been talking to Christy Harris. She's just won a medal at the Women's Boxing World Championships at India. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Time for Food Interlude, the last Food Interlude of 2018. Very glad Michael Harden can join us. Good morning. Good morning. Best and worst food trends of 2018. Very yeah. exciting. Just try and shut me up. It's sort of like I've got a whole list here. <laughs> oh, 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 I love we're it. We're going to start with the worst or the best. Um, I think we're going to start with the most tragic, which is oh. um, avocados fall from grace. Oh, um, wow. so it's sort of like you know it's been it's been on a height, flew too high, and uh, <laughs> now it is uh, now it has touched the sun and it's crashing back to earth. Um, but uh, number one, you know, as we all know, it's stopping young people from buying yes. houses. So you know, yes. it's sort of like it's, it's that one. Um, it's also it's um, officially lost its vegan status. What, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. If you can't, if you're a true vegan, you're not allowed to eat avocado anymore because um, most avocados are now farmed using um, migratory beekeeping. So they oh. ship in bees in hives to the avocado farms in order to pollinate Get them out. because there's not enough natural bees to actually on an industrial scale. So they have to bring in like thousands of beehives. That's messed and up. And so now the bees are in the services of of um, avocados and in the um, service of big avocado. Big avocado. Avocado, yeah, exactly. I can't believe yeah. that you've removed avocado from the vegans' plate. Sorry, eat. sorry. Oh, but it is a I bit of a. It's a migratory beekeeping is a bit of a slippery slope because there's a lot of crops that are pollinated by migratory beekeeping. Is that because so. the bees are dying out, or 
A little bit, but also because of the scale. It's right. like you know, dust when because avocados have become so huge, and uh, you know that that they're all over the place. I think maybe it's our fault because we started the smashed avocado thing, and mm-hmm. you know now it's spread. So, uh, oh. so thanks Australia. But um, <laughs> but the other thing, which is which is kind of funny, but awful at the same time. There's a thing, such a thing now as blood avocados as in blood diamonds. So there's avocados in Mexico, avocado farms in Mexico that have been chucked off their land by Mexican drug lords (gasps) because they can make so much money out of avocados now that... The avocados are now known as blood avocados, and so there's these are mainly going into the UK. They're being imported into the UK. Oh my god, this is horrible. Yeah, I know. It's horrible. I don't think I can ever eat avocado again. Mm, yeah. Well, the, the, the Australian ones are still a bit free range, so you oh. know it's like. But um, but oh. it's mainly the UK imports that this is happening to. So um, you know. So sorry to bring it down like that, Jeez. but uh, oh. but it's sort of like it's another it's it's one of those things like avocados. It's like it's got parallels to um, quinoa. I was going to say it's the, like the quinoa. Yeah, thing, yeah. It? That it's sort of like you know the people that were eating all of that and it becomes so trendy and fashionable in you know the the Western the the wealthy Western world that uh, it becomes uh, un- you know it's it's not great for the uh, the locals that once ate oh and grew goodness. that. So um, oh. there's a trend. We need something to replace avocados now. Yeah, yeah. You can tell us about that. Hopefully not with the ubiquitous breakfast panna cotta. Oh. Which is like, you know, it's like this sort of... um, What is it about? I I was thinking this recently. Panna cotta on every breakfast menu. Yeah, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. It's like, you know, and they like they try and get it in by stealth. It's like, no, it's breakfast. So they'll put a couple of grains on it or, a, you know, some flowers or a blueberry or something. It's like, it's breakfast. It's like, it's not. It's dessert and it's horrific. What, and, what actually is a panna cotta? A panna cotta is basically it? baked cream. So it's sort of sweetened cream with a bit oh. of gelatin in it and put into a mould and baked. Oh. So, you know, it's sort of sugar and cream. Well, can't you have that for breakfast? Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, dessert. it's a dessert. Mm. It's a dessert. Just ask any Italian. <laughs> so, oh, you're laying down some laws. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? Yeah. The new side of Michael. Yeah. yeah, I know. I'm really. I've gone all out. It's the last one. Um, so the uh, another trend is uh, the the disappearance of salt on restaurant tables. So um, oh. you're going into restaurants and the chefs are laying down the law, going, "I've seasoned this." the way that it should be and you're not allowed to. So you have to actually now in a lot of places ask for salt, which makes you feel like a bit of a wanker mm. and, you know, that you've got a really bad yeah. palate, you know, that's sort of like it's like, no, we've, I've, I've developed this dish and uh, you're going to eat it the way that I want to eat it. And uh, oh, yeah, I can sort of see that. Yeah, I think that there's there there is really? some there is yeah. some merit in it, but it's sort of like you know it's the freedom freedom to salt is um, oh, in, yeah. is You start so. wearing t-shirts. I once had a chef when I was younger, and I didn't. Um, I didn't really quite get that you didn't ask for getting a steak well done at a good restaurant. I got taken to a good restaurant. Mm. And when they said, hey, do you want your steak? I said, well done. The chef refused to do it. Did, oh, really? Yeah, it was did, they, and, did he come out of the kitchen and abuse the, you? The waiter or? said, oh, the, the chef says that, that the meat, you know, the meat is best. You know, they said it in a nice way because mm. I think they didn't want to embarrass me. But that's kind of the equivalent of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. they know what's best. Like I worked in a rest, I've, I've worked in restaurants for years and at one restaurant that the chef, if anybody asked for a well done steak, he would throw it in the deep fryer <gasps> and just fry it until it was like this grey piece of jerky oh. and then pop it on the plate. Oh. That, that's, how, that's how he thought about people like you. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, God. <laughs> 
right. Yeah, well, won't ask for the salt, extra salt. Yeah, 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 extra salt, you never know <laughs> what you're going to get. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. What other um, trends are there? Um, we're seeing a couple of things that I'm glad to see fading away. Microherbs are leaving mm. the, the building, which is sort of like annoying little bits of fluff on the top of food that they, they put on as a garnish that they think that looks really good. Mm. Um, it's sort of like the equivalent of, you know, years ago with alfalfa, you know, when alfalfa was on yes. everything. And it's that sort of, you know, not to be too blunt, but it's sort of, you know, that kind of pubic hair kind of getting getting caught yep. in your teeth kind <laughs> yep. of thing on top of everything. I understand. The, that, was yeah, pretty, yeah. that was pretty blunt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's fading away that I'm really happy about is um, people putting things on, chefs putting things on boards and on oh. bits of slate oh, yes. and everything. So no one ever liked that, did No, they? no, particularly not waiters who couldn't pick it up. You know, yes. they were sort of like, you know, they're flat oh, and heavy yeah. on the table. So they were really... And it was... Who who wanted uh, their, their meal on a board? Also, a poached... Anyway. Uh, for me, I used to get... There's a place I used to go and they always gave me my poached egg on a board and they just run off yeah. the off, edge yeah. and I just thought, just give me a plate. And how clean is it, really? Oh, you know, that's it's, a very good point. You know, it's like how many people have had their running egg I had not that, thought about yeah, that and now yeah. you've yep, ruined yep. it. So, you know, <laughs> can yeah. I have that on a plate, please? <laughs> so, but uh, the, the, the other thing that's coming in to replace it is that a lot of... The, it's all sort of bespoke crockery so people are getting people to make crockery for them in their restaurants and and now there's even a couple of restaurants in melbourne where the chefs are actually making their own plates plates for we, each meal? Yeah, yeah, they're kind of, they're going out. It's sort what? of like, so now on are your... on your, wor- your are they working hard enough already? Yeah. No, 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 they're just sort of like, you know, they're, they're, they've got about three hours left in the day. It's sort of like, you know, hopefully they're, you know, digging their own kiln and, and hand firing their, their own plates. But it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those things, it's like, it's now, it's kind of, you have to have your own bespoke crockery as well. So, um, oh. you know, I think we, we're talking high end here, but, you know, mm. it's sort of like, but it could spread down. Who knows? Nice. Too so, much. Yeah, exactly. Um, charcoal, new superfood. Um, charcoal? So, yeah, activated charcoal. Oh. And uh, mainly made from um, coconut shells. And uh, it's supposed to be, you know, for it's sort of good it cleans for you sort out, of clean, cleans, it? cleaning you out and sort of like, you know, antioxidant and mm. all of that sort of stuff. The funny thing with charcoal, though, that it's basically sort of like it's more like a marketing Instagram tool. So it, it turns everything pitch black. Right. So it actually flavors things. And, so, and the, the most hilarious thing about this new superfood is it's been used in pizzas and ice cream and fish and chips. There was a worldwide no. thing that happened with where they made it was so gross um, fish and chips with activated charcoal in the batter. Oh. So just just picture the the, yes. the size and shape of a piece of fish, mm-hmm. black, and black, gross. on your table. So yeah, yeah, it really didn't look pleasant. What about the chippies? No, the chips they left alone. Oh, yeah, a bit of contrast there. Yeah, then. exactly. You know, <laughs> black and white. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> ebony and ivory. Yeah. <laughs> is it actually good for you or, or you know, has some well, superfoods? It's, it's kind of like... The- yeah, it's another one of those. It's been used for years. You know, health food stores have had it and it's supposed to be good for sort of cleansing and, you know, kind of antioxidant and that sort if of stuff. So drink, it, it absorbs bad stuff. Well, in my, your- my dad used to take charcoal tablets when he had mm. a bad tummy, but I wasn't sure if that's the same as mm. putting... Charcoal in your burger. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I have seen it. Like the the best that I've seen it recently. There's a new restaurant in um, Carlton called Kazuki's. It's sort of like a, a Japanese sort of fusion restaurant. Delicious food. But they he uses it in but he makes a seaweed butter and and colours it with charcoal. So it's this pitch black 
butter with the bread that he makes himself and it's really good and it actually sort of works there it's sort of like because it is it's quite an amazing color like it gives you inky black whereas it used to be sort of squid ink would be Mm. the main way that you would be able to color food like that this is sort of it it doesn't really have much of a flavor profile so you can sort of color things without Ah. um you know so you can do hence ice cream so What else? What else? Okay. Um, (laughs) I could just keep going. Um, The zero waste bars are the thing happening at the moment. So it's sort of like there's a lot of bars. It's sort of like it's been in restaurants sort of worrying about waste and stuff. It's moved to bars. So it's like, you know, the, the, the demise of the plastic straw. Yes. Um, a lot of them are not doing that. So now you'll see less and less of that. There's a lot of metal straws being so used. Mm. Just, just oh, we're on to the good ones now, aren't we? Yeah, there's oh, some yeah, good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm veering all over the place. Like, we could go bad any moment. <laughs> so um, plastic straws are gone. Um, metal straws and paper straws are in. Um, doing things like only um, having tap beer. Um, so that you're yes. not like like no packaging in terms of bottles and stuff. Same with wine, wine in kegs as well. So they're pouring tap like wine from taps and stuff like oh. that, and then using reusing all their waste like um, you know all of the um, citrus rinds and all of that sort of stuff to make syrups and stuff for cocktails and uh, watermelon rind to sort of infuse booze and stuff. So it's like this whole thing of trying to oh, make, make a zero waste. It's re- it's good and there's sort of some really interesting flavors. Like there's a bar in um, Footscray called Lalo that are they collect all the avocado seeds from um, cafes in the area and they make an, like an orgiate syrup, which is like an almond-flavoured syrup for using cocktails and stuff. So they're kind of ah. using all that kind of waste. So there's a good Clever. news story. I'll yeah. raise the level of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that um, I'm loving at the moment is the, is the rise of the jaffle. Um, there's oh, lots of really yes. good jaffles Love going jaffle. on at the mm. moment and people doing some really creative stuff. Um, it's sort of part of this sort of high-low kind of thing that's happening where um, good restaurants are using sort of like traditionally low foods, you know, right. in terms mm-hmm. of sort of like, you know, um, regular food and sort of giving it a bit of a designer spin. So um, there's a couple of places. There's... Um, place in Carlton called Superling, which is a sort of um, kind of an Aussie Chinese restaurant done really well, and they're doing a Mapo tofu, tofu jaffle, which oh. is super delicious. Oh. And, um, and then the um, bar that the Grossi family, the Grossi Florentina family are doing, they've got a bolognese jaffle. Oh, my oh. favourite. Which is so good. And then they I feel like you invented that when you were drunk in, like, <laughs> 1999. Yeah, no. Jaffel. You know? Classic a, leftover. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yum. Yeah, everything is good in a jaffle. It's yes. sort of like, you know, and there's a, um, there's a bar in, in Fitzroy's well called Bad Frankie's who um, they specialise in jaffles. And uh, they do, like, there's a whole bunch of different ones that they do, but they do a, a sweet lamington Jaffles, so it's coconut and chocolate, Ooh. and it's really it good. It's really good. It actually works. I was I was very dubious about it. Sort of came at it, you know, sideways, and uh, <laughs> but you know, try to, and it's actually actually works for me. So. Oh, I feel yeah. like we go all day, but I suppose we better do the news. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Michael Hutton. Yeah, thanks so much no for all of this year. We'll see you next year. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Bye. This is a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. There's a new edition of the literary magazine, The Lifted Brow, about to hit the streets. It's called Black Brow, and it's co-edited by Paola Bola. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. In October, The Lifted Brow put out a statement on its website saying, in essence, that it was too white and it wanted to do something about it. What did it set out to do? (laughs) Well, yes, it was. (laughs) Um, So, look, we had a little bit of an ongoing relationship already with Sam Cooney, the publisher of The Brow. So I'd been fortunate enough to be published in it myself earlier uh, when the brilliant author Alan Van Nieven invited me. She was a guest editor on an edition. Uh, so Sam approached uh, me to edit um, a, an all-black edition uh, to literally hand it over to us. And I said I'd be happy to do it as long as I could do it with my mob. So I then dumped a whole year's worth of extra work on my amazing (laughs) (laughs) colleagues and friends and they they graciously accepted the offer Um, and they're pretty phenomenal because that's Karen Jackson, uh, the director of Mindani Balak, which is our Indigenous Academic Centre at at Vic Uni, Kim Kruger, a lecturer there, activist, uh, artist, arts worker, uh, and Pauline Wyman, who's a brilliant um, writer, producer, actor, director, filmmaker, um, and uh, Tony Birch, who's our token male. <laughs> yeah, that work with us. Uh, we love Birchie, um, and he's he's at VU with us as well, and uh, he's a research fellow there, actually. And, um, yeah, so he you know offered to step aside and we're like no way we want we want your voice there so he's really important um he's, he's an incredible support of aboriginal women's voices and work and we really appreciate him for that um lots of magazines have done special guest editions in the past but i guess what's different here it wasn't just a question of new editorial staff all of the positions were being filled by first nations people including designers publicists events coordinators everyone that's a big task to suddenly find a whole new crew of people to do everything connected to a literary magazine how did you go about doing it just our black vine (laughs) 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 it's our mob and it's how we work so one of the things that white organizations often say to us is that you know it was too hard to find an aboriginal person Mm. for this position or role or and it's like uh no we're like all over the place you just haven't you know clocked in you haven't looked or you haven't made the effort or you haven't done enough homework or you haven't built the relationships with us yet so um uh really great young um Emerging editor Bridget Caldwell uh, is our managing editor. So we sort of mentored uh, Bridget into the role, being the youngest person in our team. Um, and so it was really exciting to watch her. So t- for her to get an ongoing opportunity to at the brow, that was really important that any roles that any of our mob got, that it be an ongoing new relationship or ongoing relationship with the brow. So, you know, when they made that commitment to us, we could say that they were serious. We practised a bit of, you know, like our black patients making people wait for a while and see how committed they really were. So we, we don't, you know, suddenly jump up if white fellas offer us an opportunity. It's like, let's check them out. Let's see if they're serious. And let's, you know, wait and see how patient they are. And Sam and the team were patient. So Laura DeVrosa did our um, uh, design and uh, tonight, you know, the emceeing and the DJing and the events and everything is with our mob at Footscray Arts Centre. So Footscray That's Community Arts Centre. Yeah. Um, what was the brief when you were commissioning material? Were you primarily commissioning or did you just do a call-out and um, invite people to send you stuff or a bit of both? 
we did think about the call out, but then because of very particular issues that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and South Sea Islander women face, we decided that we would curate this pretty closely. And so what we did was we drew on all of our relationships and our, you know, and they, they take a long time to develop. This mm. is over our working lives and our community lives. And so we drew on that. And, you know, apart from Bridget being a young and I'm the second youngest <laughs> in the group, I have something in my mid forties and, um, you know, but the other people that I mentioned, that editorial collective, they're people that I've looked up to my entire working career in Melbourne over the last 20-something years in black arts, you know, in education. And um, it's just really important that we look after those relationships. So we drew on those to really curate this collection quite closely. So we wanted the, the writers, and some are really new, some are the first time, you know, uh, for being published. So we wanted to speak to issues that are really touching and affecting Aboriginal women right now. Um, I know we're going to talk about the content, which would be the point of it in just a moment, but I'm so struck by the cover as mm. well. Uh, it's really rad. How did that come about? Who did that artwork? Isn't it amazing? It's really cool. It's really good to describe things visually on the air, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I, I was like, I was trying to work out how to show watch. <laughs> so... There is a fabulous, like, musk lolly pink, my favourite kind of lolly, cover uh, with all black font. And then there's a fair-skinned Aboriginal sister rocking short hair. Uh, she's got Aboriginal flag heart-shaped earrings on and the Aboriginal flag draped around her shoulders. So she's just stepped off, you know, the a protest or just maybe she's just going out for the day with her flag. <laughs> like do. Um, and she's just, you know, got her luscious pink tongue just hanging out of her mouth sort of going, come on, come at me. Yeah. Or, you know, this is who I am, not, you know, defying expectations and stereotypes. And it's by an amazing young artist called Ruby Color Color. So on Insta, she is Life of Life of Ruby. Um, and she's a really young artist and we just loved her work. So I thought it was perfect for the cover. Yeah, I'm going to look her up after this. <laughs> Do you open with a piece by Tracy Bunder called Seeing the Aboriginal Sovereign Warrior, which in some ways felt to me like it really set the tone of the edition. What's the argument that she puts forward in that? Uh, yeah, look, we're so fortunate to have, um, and I call her auntie, uh, from a sort of respect relationship that I have with her. Uh, she's also one of my PhD supervisors, so I'm really um, honoured that, um, she was able to write for us. Um, uh, Annie Tracy started writing about the sovereign Aboriginal uh, warrior woman uh, years ago, um, and it's really about reasserting, you know, our authority as Aboriginal women, which is really, you know, there's been an attempt to erode that and destroy that by colonisation um, and by patriarchy, colonial patriarchy. Um, so she talks about how centred she is, and that our standpoint. And, and many of us in the Aboriginal community are matriarchal. My family is. Um, it's about that standpoint of your womanhood as an Aboriginal woman. So we're often holding families and communities together. And we are very, very strong, but we're also very vulnerable. Um, and that's what she speaks about. She speaks about the centering um, of us holding families and communities together, genealogy, story, knowledge. Um, and she also talks about writing as a sovereign act, which I just find so exciting because we're just unequivocally saying who we are, you know, without apologising for it. Uh, you also publish Lydia Thorpe's maiden speech to Parliament. And I saw, what, a couple of days ago she had a piece in The Age writing about the extraordinary attacks and very personal attacks that she received during the state election. Were you surprised by that? By the attacks? Yeah. No. No, we... Um, 
Yeah, I missed that article, but, uh, you know, knowing her and seeing um, her incredible commitment and, you know, we were all very disappointed to see her um, not regain her, her spot. But um, those kind of attacks are really common for Aboriginal women in public life and she copped it when she started emerging, you know, in the run for her seat. Um and it happened to Tani and Onis Williams when she, um, you know, made her, you know, can I swear? Yeah, that's yeah. sure. Yeah. So when she made her Fuck Australia, Hope It Burns to the Ground speech, um, we saw, you know, really vicious attacks on her too. So it's just some of the cowardice that you see on social media. Um, but it's really violent. So often the things that are said to Aboriginal women are about our bodies, mm-hmm. about threats of rape and murder. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Lydia is an incredibly staunch woman. She comes from a family of staunch, you know, sovereign warrior women. Um, and, yeah, but she, look, she's a constant inspiration and we just have to keep up the fight. Like there's no, um, there's no way around it. You just have to do it. Once you've made that commitment publicly, that's, that's the life you live. So... Yeah, we have to get around our women and support them. And that's what we're really hoping to do with this edition too, is about platforming their work. And by putting her speech, um, you know, uh, into writing, we just thought it'd be such an exciting piece of text for people to have and take their time to read. And you were saying before there's going to be an ongoing relationship between the people who've contributed to this um, and the Lifted Brow. How will that work after this comes out? So it, what we really talked about with Sam and the Brow team, who we just appreciate so much that... Um, we wanted to build ongoing relationships so there'll be other opportunities for our designers and, and for Bridget as an ongoing editor. For any of the writers that have now been published, it means that they the brow can approach them in future editions um, to you know either return as writers or return as editors. We would love to do another um, all-black edition. It might be a different theme, we're not sure, but um, it's definitely on the cards. There's also there was a great. This is one of my favourite articles, and it was um, by Angelina Hurley because I do <laughs> comedy, yes. and it was just a great um, insight on um, her thoughts of, of comedy, and also um, writes about um, uh, when what Trevor Noah did during his 2018 tour and how um, she walked out on his on his show. Can you tell us a bit bit more about her article? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's called of mice and meh. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of riffing on some literary tomes um, yeah. there. Um, but Angelina is uh, a brilliantly funny um, comedy writer um, and academic. Uh, she also presents a brilliant um, radio show, Wild Black with Dr Chelsea Bond. They're just fierce warrior women. It's out of women. Brisbane. Yeah, yeah up yeah. in Brisbane. You can get it as a podcast. It's so cool. Um, but, look, I just think their stance was incredible because they really came out fighting when, you know, I call him Trevor, no way, but um, <laughs> <laughs> when Tre- Trevor came out with that, you know, we all really felt his insult quite deeply in our bodies and what you quickly see is a lot of white people rushing to his defence and saying, oh, mm. but it was years ago and he did it ages ago and you should move on. But w- when you hear those comments about yourself as an Aboriginal woman and your very body and you think about your grandmothers and your aunties and your daughters mm. and nieces, um, it cuts very deeply and so I just think she's so courageous but the way she's you know tackled it in that piece is so clever because she went into a lot of detail about the generosity that her and Chelsea Bond and um, some other you know Aboriginal women warriors went in to try to explain to him very patiently and he still didn't get it yeah still Um, refused to apologize yeah yeah as you said the magazine is going to be launched today at the Footscray Community Arts Centre yep 
Um, whereabouts is that? That is at 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. And I just thought about this morning that it's called Moreland Street. It's like as if white people don't have enough, they go calling the streets Moreland Street. But it is... It's a beloved spot on the Maripanon and cooling country that I love very much. It's in my hood. I live in Footscray. Um, but, yeah, so it's 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, at 6 o'clock tonight. You're all welcome. Please come. And there's going to be a set uh, by uh, Soji Gang, who's an amazing young um, Aboriginal warrior DJ. <laughs> the special edition of The Lifted Brow is called Black Brow. If you can't make it to the launch, I'm sure you can find it in all good bookshops. Otherwise, you can subscribe on the website. We've been talking to one of its editorial team, Paola Baller. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Between to Breakfasters here on RRR, Green Nomads Wild Places is a new book out through Hardy Grant. Its authors are Bob Brown and Paul Thomas. They're joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good day. Hi. <laughs> In 2017, the pair of you went on an extraordinary journey along the south coast of Australia. Where did you go and what took you there? It wasn't so uh, extraordinary, really, because it was all on public roads. We, we sailed up the west coast of Tasmania That's first. That's not a road, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> to sea, to sea road. <laughs> and then we walked up the Tarkine coast on the west of Tasmania because the foundation I've got is trying to protect this largest unprotected wilderness in southern Australia, which has got the biggest temperate rainforest in, in Australia. And then in, uh, we drove really from Canberra across to Mildura and from there around the Great Australian Bight, including Kangaroo Island, round into Western Australia and then cross-country to Shark Bay and home again. That took 10 weeks. Wow. Oh. No, it took longer than that because that doesn't include the boat trip up the Tasmanian coast. So it's really over three months. Mm-hmm. Was it always envisaged as a book project or was it was that something that came later no it was something to do first up we, we <laughs> fair enough well i'd been with sea shepherd on uh the great australian bite where they uh with the wilderness society trying to stop deep sea drilling for oil and bp had withdrawn from that bp had that massive spill in the gulf of mexico in 2009 which they're still climb, trying to clear up hundreds of billions of dollars down the line and lives lost and massive impacts on the environment but the great australian bites far deeper and now we've got stat oil the norwegian company wanting to drill two kilometers down through the sea and then one kilometer through the seabed to bring out oil in one of the what can be one of the wildest oceans on earth so a lot of worry about that because Mm -hmm. if there was a similar oil spill there to the bp one it would take every beach and foreshore in victoria it would surround Tasmania and it would go up the east coast past Bondi. So it's, a, it's not small pickles. But I was, I, on a week out there with Sea Shepherd, whales, dolphins, wow. Cape Barren geese, albatrosses, magnificent cliffs. So I said to, came home and said to Paul, we should drive around there. Uh, nobody knows about this. It's, it's fabulous. And this book's sharing what we got to see. There'd actually been a forerunner because two years previously we produced Green Nomads, the first Green Nomads, and that basically covered the eastern 
part of Australia, driving up through outback New South Wales, outback Queensland, visiting bush heritage properties, up to the Gulf of Carpentaria and Cape York, then back down again. So we did have some idea of what was involved in producing green nomads, wild places. Tom, how do you feel about... Uh, Sorry. Pop. Oh, gosh. I'm Sorry. That's yeah, Bob. <laughs> I went by your, your last name. No. I was calling you Tom instead of Paul Thomas. Sorry. Uh, how do you feel when, yeah, when Bob comes home and goes, right, come on, we've got to go on another journey? Are you kind of like, yes, we have to do it, let's, let's go? Or are you like, all right, here we go, time to go again? Uh, well, yes, I've been there, done that. I know what's involved. But it does take quite a bit of planning especially in relation to the timing mm. because I've got a, a sheep property and I have to uh, stage my time away from the the property according to what the sheep's needs are. Ah. So we went after the shearing in February last year <laughs> and I was the dags boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a book full and of... the sheepdog. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book full of beautiful photos. Some of the really spectacular ones come from the Franklin River where, Bob, you were arrested and spent 19 days in jail during the blockade there. Is it gratifying to go back to a place like that and think, gosh, all of this beauty, this biodiversity is here, it would have been destroyed had we not done those projects yeah, it's back fabulous then. and so many people from right around australia not least melbourne were involved in fact thousands and thousands and fifteen thousand people turned out in melbourne there in 1983 when hazel hawk put on her no dams earrings mm. uh, before the hawk government was swept into office and the franklin was a big boat changer these days it's amongst the 10 top most desired whitewater adventure places on earth and according to one American organisation, it's number one. Not because it's the biggest, but because it's the wildest in terms of naturalness and takes ten days to raft down there. And just about anybody can do it these days with modern... And they've got these newfangled things called wetsuits, <laughs> <laughs> which keep you warm. <laughs> Very different to the 70s. But it's a great trip. And, um, yeah, it, and going back there, to think of all the people who got involved in, in that and that it was such a success and now nobody argues that it wasn't also an economic and employment success because that's bringing lots of jobs to west coast tasmania you kind of watch what's happening with the dani at the moment and it's hard to think that we went through what we went through say with the franklin and we have all these wonderful results from the protests that happened and stopping that that we kind of haven't learnt from that do you ever lose faith in the fight at all no, what happened was the corporate sector got much smarter after mm. the Franklin and the Daintree and Kakadu and thought, we're going to beat them at the pass. We'll put new laws through the parliaments and weak spine governments have passed laws to try to repress protests. There's much bigger penalties these days. But Adani is a litmus test and it's the new challenge to all Australians and it was so great to see all those school kids out uh, intelligently putting a point of view uh, and, and making the cabinet room in Australia look like it was uh, the classroom that just sim simply couldn't get it together. Those youngsters did. And if Adani goes ahead, I'll be bringing a cavalcade of cars up from Hobart. And uh, I spoke to my little foundation the other day and said, it's about time we're going to have to get a, a register here for people 
who will come with us? And Jenny Webber said, oh, Bob, we've already got that going. There's 282 <laughs> people signed up and more to come. <laughs> oh, no, oh, I, like, I mean, you talk about it with such passion and after this horrible week that we've just had in Parliament, this kind of joke of a week, do you, do you miss politics or are you happy that you're on this side now, being able to do what you do? No, I've always been an environmental campaigner and yeah. always certainly in, in uh, the Parliament. That was to the fore. It was a great privilege being there, but I'm I'm out and uh, campaigning for the Tarkine and uh, we've got a, um, Emma Watson here in Melbourne coordinating a campaign here and we've just got a lobbyist in Canberra because if you don't lobby in Canberra, you the big um, end of town beats you every, every time. I know that from having been there. But this little planet of ours is in a dire emergency and, and when David Attenborough comes out and says that, you know, he's a very reticent gentleman. We know that uh, the time is up and we're the wealthiest country on earth. The UN figures show that we've got more money in our pockets than any other. We've left Switzerland behind. We're the richest country on earth. We can, uh, but who's stepping off the footpath? Well, it's time we did because it's our kids. It's not our, our grandkids anymore who are going to suffer the consequences of uh, 8 billion human beings marauding this planet uh, uh, at a rate that's 70% above its restoration ability at the moment already. Yeah. Sarah, a lot of people say to me, how are you enjoying Bob's retirement? <laughs> <laughs> and I say, hang on. What Bob retirement? Bob hasn't retired. He's just changed jobs. So. <laughs> I have heard he's home a little bit. <laughs> I have heard you talk about going into the wilderness as a kind of rejuvenation or a revival after um, the awfulness of, uh, of politics at the moment. Does that still work in the same way given how dire the environmental threat is at the moment. I mean, when the Franklin campaign was on at the moment, this really was a kind of untouched wilderness. But, like, even in this book, everywhere you go, you're collecting piles of plastic. We now know that there are plastic particles that, you know, from the top, the tallest mountain to the deepest part of the world. I mean, I guess I'm, I suppose what I'm asking you, do you find it kind of depressing now, like how endangered and how threatened everything is? Look, I... I, I get asked that question very often and, and not least from um, kids kids saying, why aren't you depressed? It's logical to be depressed. And I just look back and say, well, you're burdened with intelligence. And uh, I've got in my last book, Optimism, the quote from Bertrand Russell, which says, the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure. And this was written 70 years before Tony Abbott and co came along mm. and, and Donald Trump. The stupid are cocksure but the intelligent are full of self-doubt, well, get over it because uh, pessimism is a much stronger driving force than uh, 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 weaker. Uh, well, pessimism and optimism are both strong dri driving forces, but I say if you're going to open a sandwich shop, be optimistic. Your customers will keep coming back. If you're pessimistic, they won't, and it's the same with saving the planet. We have the collective intelligence to turn it around, but we've got to become a bit more active about it. And um, that's where, again, go back to those youngsters last week. Prime Minister might have been um, criticising them, but the vast majority of Australians were with them and they're the intelligent ones and they're the ones who... Are, uh, and, and add to that action. And our, our foundation's motto is don't get depressed, get active. It's a good one too. We were speaking to a professor of biodiversity um, 
last week and he, he we asked him just kind of off the cuff, oh, you know, what do you do when you're feeling overwhelmed and, and you can't deal with this and what do people in your industry do when you go, he said, I'll go and buy a pot of land in Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I'm just wondering, what is it about Tassie, do you think, that, that kind of draws people to it like that? It's naturalness. And that's the biggest economic driver. And over a million visitors for the first time in the last two years. And all the all the polls show that Mona's great, Port Arthur's fantastic, but it's the wilderness that's the biggest draw card to Tasmania. And in a world where that's disappearing at the greatest rate in history, um, it's incredibly important because you see we're bonded to nature. We've we've come out of nature. We're bonded to it. That's why we put pictures of flowers on our walls instead of chainsaws or bulldozers <laughs> it does something and um, I, I know as a doctor from way back yeah, anxiety is a big uh, component of a lot of illnesses and nature's the biggest anxiolytic that is the biggest get a ridder of uh, anxiety if you'll excuse my English uh, it's extraordinarily invaluable and that's why we need a great forest national park in Victoria for example a much better investment in the future than uh, cutting that down to make paper products which can come out of plantations. Mm. And uh, just finally, you mentioned the school kids walking out um, last week. We had that on the one hand. On the other hand, the parliament seems to more or less have given up on climate change. We don't really have a climate change policy anymore. Do you think the future then is that kind of civil disobedience? We seem to be seeing more of that in Britain at the moment. Is that the way that uh, we're going to push them back on this Yes, stuff? it's uh, absolute right. In fact, I went to the High Court over that last year and a Conservative High Court voted six to one to strike down new laws in Tasmania trying to penalise peaceful protest in the forests. Uh, so the first thing is, yes, it is our um, right and people should use it. But the second thing is civil disobedience begins at the ballot, ballot box. And I hear people complaining about our politicians. Well, 90% of people at the last federal elections voted for the Adani mine and for six mega coal ports and for more logging of Australia's forests and for um, the destruction of Australia's woodlands and so on. Get a grip on it. Until we vote for our children instead of ourselves and put the environment and the planet's welfare back to the top of what we consider when we go up the garden, uh, the school path to vote, we're letting, we're letting the earth down. We're letting the future down. So there's plenty of choices, but um, people have got to... Uh, got to think about that and uh, step off the footpath, yes, or if you haven't got time for that, get behind activist organisations for the environment and social justice that are going to make this country and the world a better place. I think one of the things that the school children strike demonstrated was that uh, these days with uh, social media campaigning and when, for example, I got a response from the Minister for Environment's office the other day saying, uh, I, d I take no notice of uh, petitions. Uh, young people, particularly, who don't have the opportunity to vote yet, feel that they're not being listened to. No one's, even if they uh, do respond to petitions, um, they can't vote. How else are they going to get a message across? Mm -hmm. The book is Green Nomads, Wild Places. It's out through Hardy Grant. We've been talking to its authors, Bob Brown and Paul Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.